Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. If you want to check out any show notes from this episode, listen to other episodes, or learn about Trip Hacks DC guided tours, you can do all of that over at TripHacksDC.com. If you're new to this podcast or Trip Hacks DC in general, hello, my name is Rob. I'm a tour guide, and I founded Trip Hacks DC back in 2017. My goal is to give you my best tips, tricks, and travel hacks so you can have the best possible trip when you come here to Washington, D.C. Today, I am going to cover a topic that in six years of making Trip Hacks DC travel content, I've never actually covered, and that's safety. Before we get into the meat of it, I want to explain why I've never covered this topic and why in 2023, I finally felt compelled to make this episode. It's not because this isn't an important topic. It is. The reason I've held off for a long time making content about safety is because it's a big, complex topic, and the internet is often not a good venue for discussing big, complex topics, especially not social media, which is where most of my content lives. Early in the history of Trip Hacks DC, I was watching a lot of travel YouTubers to get inspiration for my own videos. There are quite a few creators that I really like and really respect, and who I've even collaborated with in one way or another. Anyway, years ago, pre-COVID, one of them uploaded a video with very practical advice for staying safe while you travel in the U.S. Everything in the video was perfectly valid. So after I watched it, I went down to the comment section to leave a comment along the lines of, you know, great tips, number three especially applies in D.C., or something like that. But when I got down to the comments, I found an absolute cesspool. There were some of the most toxic, vile, racist comments that I've ever seen on a travel YouTube channel. And again, there was nothing particularly controversial or polarizing in the video itself. It seems like the topic of safety, and particularly if it includes the word crime, it just draws in some of the worst toxicity from all corners of the internet. So for that reason, this is going to be a podcast exclusive. I know I could make a video version of this for YouTube, Photoshop together a thumbnail with the Capitol Dome in the background, yellow caution tape in the foreground next to a police car with flashing blue and red lights. I could title it something clickbaity like, Is Washington, D.C. too dangerous to visit in 2023? And if I posted that video, it would probably get more views than any other video on my channel in its first week. Because it's a topic that's of high interest, but that also sucks in a lot of the same toxicity that I found in that comment section years ago. Plus, I believe this topic deserves more than a 10-minute YouTube video. So that's why this podcast is going to be my exclusive resource on the topic of safety. Okay, so then what finally prompted me in 2023 to make this episode? Back in January, there was a clip from cable TV that went semi-viral in D.C., In this clip, the host basically says that Washington, D.C. has become a third-world country because of crime. But he didn't stop there. He then went on to say we are basically the same as a country in Africa that has been struggling with an ongoing civil war for decades. I'm not going to repeat the exact quote because it's totally outrageous, but that's the gist of it. People talk trash about Washington, D.C. all the time. I am more than used to watching politicians stand on the House or the Senate floor and say the nastiest things about the city and the people who live here. 
I see pundits go on national TV and cry about how Washington is broken or how D.C. is trying to ruin your life. And for the most part, I've just come to accept that this is part of the ugly, ugly games in national politics. Plenty of people have traveled to D.C., seen the sights, had a wonderful time, and fully know that political performance is often just that, a show, a performance for a specific audience. But this one really got under my skin, because millions of people watch this cable show every single day. They hear stuff like this. The actual truth, or reality, doesn't matter. It gets stated as fact and never questioned. And what drives me bonkers is that this was almost certainly not said in ignorance. It was said to score cheap political points. There have been some crimes in Washington, D.C. over the past few months that unfortunately have made it to news outside of this area. I've felt a lot of emotions myself over it. But what's so frustrating about this is that there are people who are using these incidents to argue in bad faith, which makes it very difficult to have a proper adult conversation about it. The flip side of this is that we have to acknowledge that crime does happen in the United States. It is a problem. It's not fair to anyone who's ever been a victim of a crime to say, well, this is big city America, what did you expect? This kind of victim blaming is neither helpful nor productive. We should all strive for something better. I get that this is an emotional topic, and discussions get heated. In a perfect world, no one would ever need to worry about crime and safety. But sadly, we live in a very imperfect world, so we have to do what we can with the world that we have. So all of that setup is to say that in this episode, I'm going to try to give this extremely complex topic a fair shake. It's also worth saying that safety is not strictly about crime, and I'll talk about other aspects of safety too. We also have to think about things like scams, pedestrian safety, and staying safe if you go out to the nightlife or go drinking. But let's start with crime. Here's a reality. Crime exists. It exists in the United States. It exists in Europe. It exists pretty much worldwide. The existence of crime can't be the sole reason you stay home and don't travel. Otherwise, pretty much every world destination from New York to Paris to Rome to Las Vegas would be off the table. If the existence of crime was the deal breaker, basically the only place you'd be able to travel is Walt Disney World. It's also important to say that the existence of crime is not inherently political, even though that's frequently how it's framed. There is crime in cities with Democratic mayors and Democratic governors, like New York and Detroit. And there is crime in cities with Republican mayors and Republican governors, like Jacksonville and Tulsa. There is crime in cities with Democratic mayors and Republican governors, like Dallas. And in cities with Republican mayors and Democratic governors, like Fresno. If, and this is a big if, this was a problem that could simply be solved by voting people from certain political parties into office, then it would have already been solved in all the places I just rattled off. The reality of it is much more complex and difficult than that. Crime is also not always a simple up or down phenomenon. It's extremely hard for humans to wrap their brains around crime statistics, and I will admit to getting caught up in this at various points myself. In the show notes, I'm going to link to a DCist article that goes in-depth about the Adams Morgan neighborhood here in DC. 
even though on paper crimes are down, people don't feel like crimes are down. I will admit I've been guilty of this myself. There have been several times over the past decade where I've felt like things are worse than before, where I felt more on edge than I remember feeling in the past. And looking back on those times, I don't think the stats necessarily matched my feelings, but I totally get where people are coming from. I think a big part of this feeling is how crime is covered. If I turn on the local NBC4 11 o'clock news, the first several minutes are usually a fire hose of horribleness. Back-to-back-to-back reports about terrible things that have happened, usually featuring a reporter standing on the side of the road next to caution tape with police lights flashing in the background. We tend to have vague memories about what happened last year or the year before, but in the moment, things always seem really vivid. And I bet it's a similar phenomenon if you watch the local 11 o'clock news where you live too. It probably also doesn't help that true crime has become one of the most popular entertainment genres for a while now. First, it started on national network TV, and now it's gone to podcasts, and no judgment if you listen to these, but I feel like it can really start to warp your perception of how often crime is happening if you're exposed to these stories all the time. But I really want to dig into this, because there are different types of crime, and they vary in severity. And when people broadly state that crime is up or crime is down, they are often referring only to a single crime, homicide. Now look, homicide is a gruesome crime. It's also factually true that homicides in Washington, D.C. hit a record low in 2012 and have been gradually ticking up ever since. In 2022, they were more than double that record low number from 2012. There's nothing good about that. Any number of homicides greater than zero is objectively a bad thing. At the same time, homicide is a type of crime that is extremely unlikely to impact tourists. This is a similar psychology to how, when you're going on a trip, people are often most worried about the flight. Plane crashes are scary, but they're also extremely rare. And even though the drive from your home to the airport is far more dangerous than the flight itself, people still stress out about the flight rather than the drive. So let's talk about the types of crimes that a typical tourist is likeliest to encounter and the best way to protect yourself from a worst-case scenario. And again, the purpose of this discussion is not to scare you or discourage you from traveling, but to give you the tools to be best prepared if tragedy strikes. Knowledge is power. Probably the scariest type of crime that a tourist might encounter is something like an armed robbery where someone points a weapon at you and says, give me your wallet or give me your purse. For most tourists, the best way to limit your risk of this is to stay in a hotel in a central area and stick to the main tourist areas when you go out. I have an entire guide over at triphacksdc.com hotels with information about areas I recommend. I know choosing a hotel in a big city can be overwhelming, so I've done my best to outline the exact areas I think are best for folks visiting from out of town. One practical thing I do think you should do before you leave for your trip is take a quick inventory of your wallet. I do recommend traveling with some cash for tips and other miscellaneous small purchases, but you don't need to bring hundreds of dollars in cash anymore. Almost all small businesses in 2023 accept credit cards or Apple Pay or Google Pay. If you have multiple credit cards or debit cards, don't carry all of your cards. Set aside one to leave back at your hotel as a backup. 
because if your wallet is stolen or even just lost and you have to call your bank and cancel all your cards, it's going to be a major pain when you have no ability to pay for anything. So I would probably carry just one or two cards in my wallet and I would keep a backup card at the hotel. If something happens to your wallet, you wanna have at least one card that you can continue to use. If you like to use Apple Pay or Google Pay, even better. These services are actually the safest way to pay because you never even have to take out your wallet. If you have things like a social security card, work ID, or anything like that, take it out of your wallet before your trip. If you're a domestic traveler, you do not need to bring your passport. Use a different type of ID for boarding the plane or anywhere else where you need ID. Back when smartphones were new and novel, I feel like robbers sometimes tried to steal phones, but that seems less common now that smartphones can easily be disabled and made useless to thieves. That said, I can't say it will never happen. So good digital housekeeping is to automatically back up your phone, either to iCloud or Google Cloud, so that if you need to replace an entire phone, you don't lose the data, which in many cases is far more valuable than the physical phone itself. The next several types of crimes that I feel like tourists need to watch out for all have to do with cars. I know this can feel counterintuitive because for a lot of people, they feel more safe inside their car than outside of it. But having and using a car opens you up to a handful of potential crimes. This could be someone smashing a window and trying to steal something from inside your car. It could be someone stealing the wheels off your car in the middle of the night. It could be stealing the entire car itself. And in some ways, this is an easy one for tourists to avoid. If you're traveling here by plane, skip the airport rental car. Most tourist sites in D.C. do not require a car, and you can easily get by without one as a visitor. In my opinion, driving is the single worst way for a visitor to get around. And having a car puts you at risk of several types of crimes you just won't have to worry about if you don't have one. That said, maybe you're not arriving by air. Maybe you're taking a road trip and driving your own car or a rental car. If you're driving a rental car, you especially don't want to mess around because if anything happens to that car, dealing with the rental company will not be a pleasant experience. And trust me, I know you think your credit card provides rental car insurance, and it probably does, but insurance does not mean you just get to walk away if anything bad happens. Insurance still means you have to get a police report, file a claim, submit paperwork, and deal with that whole process. It is not fun. If you're driving in but mostly doing sightseeing, park the car in a garage on day one and leave it parked until it's time to go home. I know people hate hotel valet parking because it's expensive, but it's still one of the safest options. If you do want to self-park, the garage at Union Station is usually my top recommendation. You could also use the garage at City Center or the garage at the Reagan Building. Both are right downtown. And these garages are not cheap, but they are less than a hotel valet, and again, I would rather pay the price to keep my car safe. You could also try long-term parking at Reagan National Airport, which will be less than the downtown garages, but you'll have to get yourself to and from the airport, which could be a waste of time, and depending on how long your trip is, not worth it. Wherever you park, don't leave anything of value in the car. This includes the trunk, or the glove box, or places you think are hidden, just take everything out. I cannot and do not recommend any tourists park their car on the street. I know some locals give this advice, and frankly, I think it's terrible advice. In addition to the safety of your car, you also have to worry about meters, parking restrictions, and if you mess it up, run the risk of getting tickets or towed. 
This is also why I can't recommend street parking if you're staying at an Airbnb. I don't recommend Airbnb in general anymore for a bunch of reasons, but I do know that one hack that's floating around right now is that you can get an Airbnb and the host will give you a visitor parking pass to park your car on the street for free. And when you compare this to the price to park at hotels, it looks like a big savings in theory. But parking a car on the street is just too risky for my taste. I don't own a car myself, but if I did, I would not park it on the street. Okay, so now that we've covered that, let's move on to a tangential topic, which is feeling safe when you travel to D.C. And I say tangential because I know it's important for people not just to be safe, but to feel safe. If you don't feel safe when you travel somewhere, it's hard to enjoy a trip, and I get that. Washington, D.C. is kind of unique in this regard because there is definitely an enhanced level of security at almost all of the big tourist attractions. You might pass through more metal detectors during your trip to D.C. than the entire rest of the year, depending on where you live and where you travel. You'll go through airport-style security screening to get into the Capitol, the Library of Congress, a bunch of Smithsonian museums. If and when the cafeteria at the Department of Agriculture ever reopens, you'll have to go through a metal detector to eat lunch. Some people don't mind this at all, and may even kind of like it, because it makes them feel like everywhere they go, people have been screened, and it's a safe place. On the other hand, other people feel like this is just security theater, that it doesn't make any meaningful difference, and just wastes valuable time on their trip. In the years before COVID, it was not uncommon to get stuck in a line at some sites that took 20 or 30 minutes just to clear the metal detectors. That is not a good use of time, and it's not a great experience. Washington, D.C. is also one of the most policed big cities in America. The local police, the Metropolitan Police Department, has one of the most officers per resident in the country. And on top of that... There's the Transit Police, Capitol Police, Secret Service, FBI, National Park Service Police, and a bunch of other federal law enforcement plus private security, and there are just a lot of police here. Now, I have heard some people say that this makes them feel safe. I've watched YouTube travel vlogs, and the video creators will make comments along these lines, that they felt completely safe during their trip to D.C. because police were extremely visible. On the other hand, I understand that not everyone feels this way. If you've watched my videos or seen my face on social media, you know I am not a person of color, and I can't fully appreciate how someone that's not like me feels about this. I am not personally making any judgment about this. I am simply stating some facts, and you can interpret it as you may. One thing I will say is that for a lot of people, light and darkness has a lot to do with how safe they feel and I personally fall into this camp. I just feel more comfortable walking around in the daylight than I do after dark. I feel more comfortable walking in neighborhoods with a lot of bright street lights than I do in neighborhoods with dimmer lights. For example, I used to live on a residential street in a residential neighborhood. Objectively, it was quite safe, but I always felt a little bit uneasy giving my dog his last walk of the night because even though there were street lamps, there were dark spots, and overall, it just wasn't very brightly lit. And after I left that apartment, I moved to another apartment in a neighborhood that was more a mix of apartments and restaurants and generally had a lot more foot traffic. The street lamps also seemed a lot brighter, plus the lights coming from all the businesses. 
Even though it was probably just as safe, objectively, as the residential neighborhood, I didn't feel quite as tense giving my dog that last walk of the night. So what can you do about this? Well, if you have the flexibility, you can choose to visit DC at a time of year with long days. In June and July, it doesn't get dark until after nine o'clock. So you could do a ton of stuff while the sun is still out. Whereas if you come in December, it gets dark before five o'clock. So you have a much shorter window. You could also pick a place to stay in a livelier area with more foot traffic. One of my top recommended areas to stay is the wharf because it's always brightly lit with a lot of people around. Another thing you could do if you're planning to visit when the days are short and have your heart set on seeing the sights after dark is go out with a tour guide. While I think the area around the National Mall is objectively one of the safest areas of the city, I'm not going to lie, it gets dark in the park. And if you're not familiar with it, I could see it feeling uncomfortable. So going around with a tour guide who's comfortable and confident in the route and their surroundings could help put you at ease. Speaking of areas, one question that people do ask me sometimes is where not to go. What are the no-go zones in Washington, D.C.? And this is going to be very unsatisfying if you wanted me to tell you specific neighborhoods to avoid, because I'm not. I'm not because it wouldn't be fair for me, someone who lives in one neighborhood, to tell you to stay out of a different neighborhood where I rarely, if ever, spend time. It's unfair for the same reason why it's unfair for someone who lives on the other side of the country and never comes to Washington, D.C. to tell you that the entire city is dangerous and unsafe and you shouldn't visit. What I will say is that if you stick to the beaten path, spend your time in the area around the big tourist sites, and pick a hotel in one of my recommended areas, the no-go zones aren't something you need to stress about. It's very unlikely you will accidentally wander off into an area where you're not supposed to be. That said, where people can get themselves into trouble is when they pick an area to stay outside of my recommended areas. And I find this most often happens with Airbnb. There are lots of Airbnbs in areas that are not great for tourists, but the people who run them want to make money and they want to rent them out. And they need to, let's just say, obscure the facts a little bit usually by saying that the place is only X minutes from a certain tourist site, like the White House or the Washington Monument. So my advice for this is, pick a hotel in a recommended area and stick to the beaten path. All right, we've covered a lot so far, but there's still lots more to talk about. But let's take a quick break before we get back into it. If you're listening to this podcast, my hunch is that you're probably planning an upcoming trip to Washington, D.C., or at least dreaming about a future adventure. One thing I've learned from meeting thousands of travelers and doing a bit of traveling myself over the years is that experiences are usually the best memories from a trip. That's why I started Trip Hacks D.C. I didn't just want to create content to help you plan a trip, but also to provide an amazing experience once you arrive. And I think it's worked because people tell me all the time that their Trip Hacks DC tour was the highlight of their trip. And that really makes me happy. So if that's something that sounds up your alley, you can head over to TripHacksDC.com to learn about taking a private tour with me or a public group tour with one of the amazing Trip Hacks DC tour guides. And we're back. And if we're going to talk about safety in DC, we have to talk about Metro. I know Metro is something that a lot of Americans in particular feel nervous about 
because sadly, most Americans, especially if you live in the suburbs, don't have access to anything like this and may have never even been on a subway or a metro system before. First things first, I will say that you will probably feel a lot more confident using Metro if you watch some of the Trip Hacks DC videos that I've made to teach you how to ride. I've made a bunch of Metro videos over the years. Everything from the very basics of how to buy a Smart Trip card, how to tap in, and my do's and don'ts for riding Metro. I have videos about how to use Metro to get to and from Reagan National and Dulles airports, so as soon as you land, you'll know what to do. But as far as the safety component specifically, one thing that some people like to do is sit in the very first car of the train because that's the one with the driver in it. And I suppose, in theory, if you ever needed help, you could more easily get their attention. I actually often will walk to the end of the platform and sit in the first car myself. Though for me, it's because the first car is usually less crowded than the cars in the middle of the train, since the middle of the train is usually closest to the escalator and where people come into the station. Another important thing to know is that Metro has its own specific emergency phone number. In most of the U.S., if there's an emergency, you call 911. And that's true in D.C. too. But for Metro specifically, the number is 202-962-2121. You can also text the number 696-873. I think a lot of people don't realize that you can text instead of call, and sometimes that's the better option if you don't want to draw attention to yourself or the fact that you're calling. I'll leave these numbers in the episode show notes as well, in case you didn't have a pen and paper handy right now. I do think it's a little frustrating and annoying that there's a separate emergency number for Metro, but alas, there is, so the best you can do is save these numbers in your phone and have them ready if you ever need them. If you do need to call an emergency, On Metro, the most critical piece of information you need to give is the car number that you're in. It's a four-digit number, and it's printed both inside and outside the train near the door of each car. One more thing about Metro is to generally be aware and pay attention when you're riding. When the iPhone came out, one thing that sometimes happened was people would be sitting next to a door and on their phone, and someone would just snatch the phone right out of their hand, run off the train, and run away. For a while, a lot of people just didn't take their phone out on the train. They would bring a newspaper or a magazine to read if they had a commute, but keep the phone tucked away. And I actually did this for many years. Whenever I rode Metro, I always brought a newspaper or some other kind of offline reading material. I feel like phone snatching is less common now that stolen phones have limited value, but it's still something to be aware of. Now, in a lot of big tourist cities, Something that tourists are often told is to watch out for pickpockets. Fortunately, I rarely hear about pickpocketing in D.C., at least in the most literal definition of pickpocketing. To me, pickpocketing is when someone literally reaches their hand into your pocket and takes out your wallet. I feel like I almost never hear about this kind of pickpocketing in D.C., What I do think is a potentially bigger problem is someone reaching into your purse or reaching into your bag and taking something out of it. This could happen on Metro, but also any generally crowded place is where it could happen. So let's talk about how to protect yourself from this one. I personally only use the front pockets on my pants and shorts. And yes, sometimes people give me a hard time about this because it's kind of like, really, you keep your wallet and your phone in your front jeans pockets? And yeah, I do, and I don't regret it. 
I have literally not used the back pockets of any pants, jeans, or shorts in at least the past decade. Even if some people think it's weird or uncool, I don't care. It's worth it to not have to worry about someone snatching my wallet out of my back pocket or, more realistically, it just falling out and me losing it. If you do carry a purse or a bag, I highly recommend one with a zipper and that is not extremely easy to unzip. Some purses even have a second zippered component inside where you can put your wallet and cash and other items of high value. I think traveling with a purse like this is absolutely worth it. Just make sure you're actually using these features because they're only useful when they're actually used. If instead of a purse, you carry something like a backpack or a messenger bag, be aware of any outside pockets and don't leave anything valuable in the easiest to access pockets. For example, my go-to backpack has three pockets, a main pocket, a secondary pocket, and an outer pocket that's small but potentially useful for storing small items that you need to access quickly. Never put a phone or a wallet in that outside pocket because that's the one that someone could quietly unzip while it's on your back and have a feel around. Similarly, when you go to a restaurant or a bar, be very cautious and aware of where you have your purse or bag set down. I have seen so many people who sit down at the bar and hang their purse or their bag on the back of the stool they're sitting on. This is pretty much the worst thing you can do because when you do this, you're not paying attention to your bag and anyone walking by or pretending to order at the bar can easily reach in and you'll be none the wiser. When you go to the restroom, take your purse with you. Again, this may seem like overkill, but it's better than the alternative. Or if you're traveling with other people, Before you stand up to go to the restroom, look them in the eye and say, please keep an eye on my bag. Do not just assume they're going to. If it's reasonable, physically hand your traveling companion your purse or bag to hold on to. Now, let's switch to another topic that comes up a lot in travel content, which is scams. I think in many ways we are lucky because we do not have the same volume or intensity of scams that you will find in other tourist destinations. For example, in New York City, there's the CD guy scam, where someone claims to be an up-and-coming artist, hands you a blank CD, and then demands money for it. Or in Las Vegas, the costumed characters who offer to take a photo with you but don't tell you it's not free until after you've taken it. There are lots of these all over that you need to be aware of. I feel like in D.C., the most common is the fake monk scam. Basically what happens here is you have some guys dressed up like Buddhist monks walking around with cheap bracelets that they bought in bulk. They'll try to give you one or give one to your kids and then tell you that you have to make a donation to their temple in exchange for the bracelet. The scam is that these guys aren't monks. There is no temple. And that's the reason why if you try to give them the bracelet back, they won't take it. This scam really bothers me because they're exploiting an otherwise wonderful religion to line their own pockets. The good news is, that these are relatively easy to avoid. Never take anything from someone on the street. If someone's trying to hand you something for no apparent reason, don't touch it, don't take it. Whether that's cheap jewelry or a flower or whatever. Just say no thanks or say nothing and keep walking. There are some other scams that were more common pre-COVID but I haven't really seen in a while. Uh, There's one where someone asks you to make change for them and then claims you shortchanged them and you owe them extra money. I feel like this one has mostly gone away because fewer and fewer tourists carry cash, let alone small bills to make change. Another one that I'm somewhat reluctant to call a scam, but you should be aware of, is 
anyone asking you to donate money on behalf of a charity. These are people who come up to you on the streets and tell you about a certain cause and ask you for a donation. They will almost always use the names of real charities and organizations, but it's never entirely obvious whether the money you give them is actually going to the charity. Or maybe some of it is, but a cut of it is going to them. I never mess around with these. That's not to say you shouldn't give to charity. Absolutely, if there are charities you want to support, you should give. But the safest way is to do it direct. Go on the charity's actual website, make your donation, get a proper donation receipt. Otherwise, who knows where your cash is going. I feel like the biggest and most dangerous scams that travelers need to watch out for are the home rental scams, or scams that happen while you're in a home rental. This is just yet another reason why I don't recommend Airbnb. But I know plenty of people still use it, so this is what you need to be aware of. First is, if you're going to book a home rental, always book it from an actual site like Airbnb or VRBO. Never agree to book or pay in any other way. The scam here is that someone will put up a listing for a place that they don't own or have any connection to. They don't actually intend to ever take a booking through the platform itself. What they want is for you to express interest and then for them to say, hey, you know, Airbnb fees are so high. If you could just Venmo me the money, I'll give you a 10% discount. I'll get more, you'll pay less, it's a win-win. And then you send your money and never hear from the person again. Or worst case scenario, they send you a fake confirmation and you show up at someone's house that was never for rent and only discover once you're standing on their front stoop that you've been had. This is one of the worst scams because not only has someone stolen your money, but you've also traveled all the way to Washington, D.C., hauled all your luggage to someone's home, and now you have literally nowhere to go and spend the night. And this is a really easy scam to produce because if you go on a website like Zillow or Redfin or any home for sale website, it is a treasure trove of high quality photos and data about houses themselves. So be extremely careful if you're going to stay at a place that's not a hotel. Now, let's say you've successfully booked a place on Airbnb. It's a real house. You're actually inside. There are still more scams you need to watch out for. These are scams where someone knocks on the door and either asks for money or even scarier, convinces you to let them inside. There was one of these going around pre-COVID where a guy would knock on the door he was dressed in a suit and a tie or other business clothes, and he would introduce himself as your next door neighbor. He would then spin this story about how he had to work late and just got home, and he realized he left his house keys and wallet back at the office way out in the suburbs and needs $50 or $100 to take, to take a cab back out there and retrieve them. Then, to make the story convincing, he says, I swear I'll pay you back, and in fact, I've got this brand new grill at my house. I can drag it over so you can keep it as collateral until I get back with the money. The reason this scam works is because most people in this moment will look at this guy dressed up in nice clothes and say, no, nah, you know what, don't worry about dragging over the grill, that's silly, I'll just give you the money. And then, they never see him again. But if anyone actually is suspicious enough to say, yeah, you know what, you better bring over that grill so I can hang on to it, he'll pretend to leave and go get it and then just disappear and you'll never see him again. Now imagine the scammer has identified all the Airbnb houses in a particular area. They can go from one house to the next pulling the same scam over and over and over. They can do it this week, they can do it again next week, and the week after that, 
because there will always be new people staying in the house who have no idea who the actual next-door neighbor is. The much more dangerous version of this scam is one where the person knocking on the door falsely claims to be from the gas company or the water company or Verizon, and they need to come in to do some sort of systems check. Or they'll say the Wi-Fi is out for the whole neighborhood and they need to come and check your router or some made-up nonsense like that. These people do not work for any of these companies. It is shockingly easy to buy an old Verizon uniform or a reflective vest that you could plausibly pass off as a gas company uniform. And once they're inside the house, they're looking for anything of value that's sitting out that they can just grab. And the reason why this is scary and dangerous is because if you later call up Verizon and say, hey, one of your employees showed up tonight and stole my wallet and passport, they'll say, what are you talking about? We never sent anyone out. And I don't know what to tell you. So if you're staying at an Airbnb, particularly one that's a house or like a basement apartment with a door to the street, what can you do? Basically, never answer the door. If someone knocks, don't answer. I know this might seem rude. In a lot of places, when someone knocks, the polite thing to do is answer and see what they want. But in this case, you're in a city you don't know, in a neighborhood you don't know, and are under no obligation to open the door and talk to anyone. The one exception to this might be if the owner tells you in advance that someone is going to come to do something. But I would also make sure to ask what company they're from and what exactly they're planning to do. One more thing I want to mention because people sometimes ask me if it's a scam is the guys selling water and Gatorade out of coolers on the National Mall. What's confusing to people is that on really hot summer days, these guys will set up all over the National Mall at the Lincoln Memorial, over by the World War II Memorial, and sometimes over by the museums. And right next to them will be an official National Park Service sign that says something to the effect of, for your safety, only purchase food and water from official vendors. I don't think this is a scam. I don't think this is a safety concern. And generally speaking, I think the prices these guys are selling these drinks for is relatively fair. But technically, Anyone selling anything out of a cooler is doing it illegally. That's because the National Mall has one, and only one, exclusive vendor who has the contract to sell. But this vendor, frankly, sucks. There is a huge unmet demand for cold drinks, especially on hot summer days, and the cooler guys are meeting that demand. Okay, so if it's illegal, why don't the cops just round up all these guys and send them away? Well, they have in the past, and it ruffled a lot of feathers. Back in 2017, the Park Service police kind of roughed up some teenagers selling bottled waters over by the museums. And a fellow tour guide and friend of mine captured the whole thing on video, and it went viral. Here are some of the headlines that were written after that. Police in D.C. keep National Mall safe from kids selling water. Kids handcuffed on National Mall for selling water. D.C. council member condemns park police for detaining youths selling water on mall. There are a bunch more headlines like this. But basically, as a result of this incident, there is really no more forceful crackdowns on people selling water. Whether you want to buy from someone selling out of a cooler or not is ultimately your decision. Okay, so that's a lot about scams. And now I want to pivot to a safety topic that I think is really important but relatively under-discussed. And that's pedestrian safety. When I think about folks who are visiting and the greatest danger they're going to be in during their trip, Things as simple as crossing the street or walking from point A to point B worries me more than just about anything else. 
In my heart, I do believe that walking is the best way to get around D.C. in most cases. I recommend staying downtown or at the wharf so that you can be within walking distance of many of the major tourist sites. And I also understand that for most visitors, especially those who live in certain parts of the country or certain suburbs, Washington, D.C. will feel far more pedestrian-friendly than where they're from. But there's also a harsh reality, which is that there are a lot of really, really bad, dangerous, and reckless drivers piloting 1,000-pound vehicles around D.C. Now, you might be thinking, surely these drivers can't be worse than where I'm from. I feel like we all fall victim to some extent of thinking that our city has the worst drivers on the planet, because we have to witness it every single day. I don't think it's a competition. Frankly, I don't care if the drivers here aren't quite as terrible as the ones in Boston or LA or Dallas or Albuquerque or wherever. It's still bad. This is a national problem, a big and worrying national problem. According to the Governor's Highway Safety Association, in 2021, Drivers struck and killed more people on foot than any single year in the past 40 years. And in addition to the data, it really feels like dangerous driving in D.C. went way up during COVID, and it's stayed way up since things have started to slowly but surely return to normal. There are just a lot of things happening all at the same time. People driving worse and seemingly caring less about the safety of those around them plus the fact that cars are huge now. I feel like people didn't really notice this because the change happened somewhat gradually, but there are so many huge pickup trucks and SUVs all over the place in DC. In the past, you would have mostly seen regular-sized sedan cars with a smattering of larger ones, but now it's like SUV after SUV after SUV, and these vehicles are bigger, heavier, have more blind spots, and do more damage when they crash into people or objects. It's very concerning stuff, and again, not specifically a DC problem, but one that you need to be aware of because you are probably going to do more walking when you are in DC than just about anywhere else. Just last week, there was a horrific crash that happened on Connecticut Avenue, in the middle of the crosswalk, right in front of the main entrance to the National Zoo. The pictures I saw of mangled cars destroyed in ways I didn't even know was possible, it was terrifying. I've crossed this street to go to the zoo more times than I can count. So many tourists to Washington, D.C. use this crosswalk every single day. I'm really not kidding when I say that when I worry about folks visiting D.C., from a safety standpoint, this is what I worry about the most. Okay, so practical advice. How can you keep yourself safe when walking around? The most important thing, I think, is awareness. Be aware of the fact that there are going to be a lot of really bad drivers out there. Assume the worst. Don't believe drivers are going to behave or follow the law. When you're crossing at a light, keep an eye on traffic even as you're making your way across. So awareness is really the most important thing to protect yourself. And I think this sucks because it means every time I go out, I need to be hyper aware of everyone driving on the road. Rather than just enjoying the fresh air and a nice walk, I have to pay attention to every single person behind the wheel of a car. I hate it, but that's kind of just where we are in the U.S. right now. Semi-related to this is safety on bike and scooter. My personal preferred way of getting around D.C. is on bike. I use Capital Bike Share all the time, 
including often before and after tours. So if you sign up for a private tour with me, chances are very good I arrived at the meeting spot on Capital Bike Share. My observation is actually that most tourists don't really use Capital Bike Share unless they are already semi-confident bicyclists back home. But a lot of people do use e-scooters, even if they've never stepped foot on an e-scooter before in their lives. Unfortunately, I have seen some truly bad behavior by tourists joyriding around on scooters. I'm not saying not to use them if you really want, but I am saying that they are not toys and should not be treated like toys. The way I see it is, when you ride a scooter, you have to treat it with the same seriousness as if you were riding a bicycle. For some reason, I think people feel invincible on e-scooters in a way that they just don't on a bike. And that's kind of an odd thing because there have been studies in recent years that show that because these scooters have small wheels and a low center of gravity, the rider is way more susceptible to falls than on a bike. For example, on a bike, if you ride over a pothole, it's fairly easy to stay upright. Whereas on a scooter, there is a much greater chance you're going down. Believe me, the last place you want to wind up on any vacation is the ER. One more important discussion on the topic of safety is nightlife. And I'm defining nightlife broadly for the purpose of this episode. My definition of nightlife includes basically anything you do after dark. So yes, that includes bars and clubs, if that's the kind of thing you're into. But it also includes things like a baseball game or basketball game or show at the Kennedy Center. Something where by the time it's over and you're ready to head back to your hotel, it's already dark out and it's night. While I am generally all about exploring and getting lost in a city, I think this is better saved for daylight hours. After dark, it's best to know where you are and where you want to go. My best advice for being out after dark is have a plan for how you're going to get back to your hotel. The Kennedy Center, for example, is in a part of town that's kind of isolated from other things. It's a 10-minute walk to the Foggy Bottom metro station, but on a route that's not going to have a lot of people out after dark. That said, if you're leaving a concert or sporting event, I think it's okay to stick to the crowd. Walking as one big group back to the metro feels a lot safer than walking alone or by yourself. Also be aware that for big events that all let out at once, like a sporting event, it can be very challenging to get a cab or an Uber. At Nationals Park, there's actually an official cab stand about a block north of the Centerfield gate. You can't just stand out on any old street and flag down a cab. You have to go to the cab stand and wait in line. Most stadiums and arenas will have a section on their website called transportation or getting here or something like that, and you'll want to review that because it will have very helpful information like this. Now, if you do want to go out to bars or go drinking or do what most people would typically define as nightlife, I think there are a few additional precautions to take. First, I should say that D.C. is not like Las Vegas or New Orleans where it's a party every day of the week. Around here, it's mostly limited to Friday and especially Saturday night. So if you want a more low-key drinking experience, go out on Sunday through Thursday rather than Friday or Saturday. I personally tend to avoid going out to the bars on Saturdays because it can get, eh, let's say, pretty sloppy. My personal favorite night of the week to go to bars is actually Sunday because unless it's a holiday weekend, it's usually a much more chill and relaxed experience. If you're going to go out drinking, this is also when you're probably at your most vulnerable. It's late, it's dark, and you're not at your sharpest. If you're traveling with a group, go together and stick together. If possible, have one person act as a pseudo-designated driver. 
even if you're not actually driving, having one person who can kind of be in charge of the group and aware of the surroundings is a good way to stay safe. If drinking and nightlife is going to be a part of your trip, and I know for a lot of people, this is a big part of experiencing a new city, I strongly recommend picking a hotel close to where you want to go out. DuPont Circle is good if you want to do the nightlife because you're close to some places in DuPont Circle itself. You're not far from 14th Street and U Street and Adams Morgan, which all have lots of places to go out. Basically, the closer that you can go out near where you're staying, the less you have to worry about when it's time to come back. The nightlife areas also have a lot of taxis driving around on weekend nights, so they're relatively easy to flag down. And of course, Uber and Lyft is an option. Now, there is one pretty scary thing I've heard about regarding Uber and Lyft, and I don't necessarily know of any instances where it's happened here in D.C., but it's still worth knowing about. If you request an Uber or Lyft, the app will tell you exactly what kind of car to look for and the license plate number. Always verify both before you get in the car. From what I've read, what can happen is a person with bad intentions cruises around the popular nightlife area around the time that bars are closing and people are going home. They know lots of people standing on the side of the street are waiting for a ride, so they'll pull up and say, hey, I'm your Uber, go ahead and get in, and then once you're inside, they'll rob you or potentially even worse. So always check and confirm the license plate matches to what you're looking for. If it doesn't match, don't get in. Just don't. If they try to spin some story about how, oh, my usual car is in the shop and this is my sister's car, don't believe it. Even if that's true, it's against Uber and Lyft's rules and you don't want to ride around with someone like that. All right, and with that, I'm going to go ahead and close out this episode. If you're still listening, thank you for sticking around to the end. I know this is an important topic and hopefully I gave it a fair shake. The purpose of this episode is not to scare you. It isn't to discourage you from traveling. Remember that many of the things I've discussed apply not just to Washington, D.C., but to just about anywhere in the world where you'll travel. Knowledge is power, and hopefully you feel more knowledgeable and confident after listening to me for this past hour. And since I don't have a guest today, I'll go ahead and plug Trip Hacks DC Tours one last time. Trip Hacks DC is a tour company, and I love showing people around when they visit. I'm able to produce this podcast, the Trip Hacks DC YouTube channel, and all Trip Hacks DC content completely free because of everyone who signs up for a tour. So if you have or are planning to, then you're absolutely my favorite people. If you want to find out more, just head on over to the website and check it out. Thanks for listening to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a Trip Hacks DC guided tour, visit triphacksdc.com.